Hallelujah. Right, uh, today is the International Day of Happiness. So I hope you're feeling happy. Um, I went onto the website and I downloaded the book, which goes to the International Booklet, which goes to the International Day of Happiness. Great dream, 10 keys to happier living. I, I downloaded it fully expecting to be cynical. But actually, it's pretty good. I would encourage you to, um, to, to get it. I mean, it's, it's good practical advice. So it's 10 keys. Uh, giving. We've been doing that today already. Giving for our, our special offering. Caring about others is fend- fundamental to our happiness. Helping other people. It's not only good for them, it's good for us too. Uh, relating, connect with pe- people. Our relationships with other people are the most important thing for our happiness. Exercising. Um, instantly improves our mood. We don't all have to run marathons. Well, clearly that's wrong. (laughs) If you do want to be fully happy, you do need to run marathons. Um, I felt very happy after my marathon last week. Actually, I thought I was going to pass out, but I felt very happy as well. Uh, Awareness. So, 10 keys. And and actually, really, really helpful. It's practical stuff and interesting going through it, how easily what's written here fits in with what uh, we're teaching at the moment from the book of Philippians. And I haven't got the Bible, which I will need. Thank you, Dan. Um, Paul's letter to Philippians all about joy, and what's in here really fits very easily. A lot of the things we've been talking about, about how to be happy, uh, these things fit very closely. Um, but the flaw, I think, the fundamental flaw in this is that there's no mention of, of God. Uh, it's resolutely secular, and no mention of Jesus. And that is, that is a fundamental flaw, because if, as we were looking at in our midweek groups this week, if God as I believe him to be, is the happiest being in the universe. If he is completely, fully, utterly happy, and to know full happiness, knowing God is to know full happiness, then if God is taken out of this, well, you're always going to miss it to a degree because these things kind of reflect the Christian gospel because the Christian gospel makes sense. But if you're not actually coming to God, if you're not coming to the one who is happiness, then uh, even getting the 10 keys right are not going to really help you as much as they should. You take God out and you're missing the most happy person in the universe. And the way to get happy is by being with the one who is happy. And if God is the happiest being in the universe, we need to know him and be with him. So that's, that's, that's a weakness in this. And it's a weakness which obviously is avoided by Paul in his letter to the Philippians because his letter centers around Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. We're going to be looking today at Philippians chapter 4. It's on page 692. We're going to look at just three verses, the first three verses of Philippians 4. And uh, the theme, the title of today is Joyful Reality. Joyful Reality. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, whenever there's a therefore, you have to ask what it's there for, and it's there because Paul is reflecting on everything he said in the first three chapters of this letter. He spelled out some amazing truth about, about how, how to be happy in God. And from that, he's then going to go on to make some other practical applications. So it's a helpful point. So if you haven't been here at all, as we've been looking at Philippians, hopefully this will be helpful for you. For those of you who have, hopefully this will be helpful to remind you. It's helpful at this point to kind of remind ourselves of everything that Paul has said, because it's therefore because of that. So I've, I've written... A, a, a kind of a summary version, a paraphrase version of what the letter so far says. It's one of the things I find helpful myself in getting understanding the scripture is to kind of write it out, paraphrase it myself. So let me read this to you, and it should appear on the screen as well. 
so you can follow along as we go. This is a letter from a man named Paul to a church in a town called Philippi. It's a letter to everyone in the church, a church that Paul started with his friend Timothy. They're all included. This is because of the grace and peace they have received from God. Their relationship with Jesus is what shapes all other friendships. The Philippians are often in Paul's thoughts and prayers, and thinking about them makes him happy. They are partners together in God's mission. Paul has helped them, and they have helped him. Paul longs to see them again, and he wants more for them. He wants them to, be, to abound in all the good things of God. He wants them to be happy. Paul's goal in life is clear, to tell people about Jesus. And the Philippians are caught up in this goal too. Paul is in prison as he writes this letter, but he knows his boldness has given courage to other believers. God has Paul right where he wants him, and we are right where God wants us so we can make Christ known. The gospel of Jesus Christ is really good, and we'll get happy when we talk to people about it. Paul lives life enthusiastically. Whatever circumstances he finds himself in, he wants to be fully focused on preaching Christ and experiencing joy. Supported by the prayers of other believers and empowered by the Holy Spirit, Paul is full of hope about what Jesus can do through him. Christ is the center of everything for Paul. Whether he lives or dies, it's all about Jesus. This means that both life and death have their advantages. Whatever happens to us Christians, it's win-win in Christ. This isn't to say that life is always easy. Paul the prisoner certainly knows it isn't. In fact, we need to be very honest about the reality of conflict. Conflict is an inevitable part of our lives as we live in a world disordered by sin. Like athletes in the arena, we will suffer opposition. Jesus suffered, and so will we. This reminds us that we, will, we still live in an evil age, but our suffering can be a means by which we experience more of the love of God, and it can be part of the process of us becoming more like Christ. Conflict and suffering can create divisions in the church, though, so we need to stand our ground and stand together and be brave. And the way we're going to get properly happy is by drinking in all the benefits of the gospel. We're meant to experience the encouragement of Christ and his comforting love. We're to know what it is to partner with the Holy Spirit and the affection and sympathy he pours into our lives. We'll experience these things as we stand united with the important issues about life and faith settled in our minds. Choosing to serve one another over and above our own selfish desires will find our joy being made complete. This is the way that Jesus lived. The one who was God himself really did become a man, and he really did become a servant. Jesus was truly God and truly man, and we need to see that both are true. This is extraordinary. But it is even more extraordinary that this Jesus should be prepared to die for us, even dying on a cross. One day every knee will bow before Jesus and every tongue confess that he is Lord. As those who already bow and confess, we are to follow his example of humility we're to work at our obedience to Jesus because there is no lasting happiness for us outside of him. Rather than being grumblers and moaners, let's give ourselves to Jesus and to one another and rejoice as we do so. If we're going to live this way in happy obedience to God and in imitation of Jesus, we're going to need to work at our friendships. We have some great models for this. Other Christians have shown us what true friendship is. Putting others first, cheering others on, working hard together. Real friends fight for one another and do all they can to help meet one another's needs. We're not going to be best friends with everyone, but the church only works as it should when we're together as friends. We need to watch out, though, for people who pretend they're our friends but are really intent on robbing us of our joy. Don't tolerate people in the church who try and point you anywhere other than Jesus. 
Their way can't make you happy. Remember, the way that we get right with God doesn't have anything to do with who our parents were or the kind of morals we've adopted. It's only because of Jesus that we are welcomed by God. In fact, knowing Jesus and anticipating resurrection life in him puts everything else in the shade. Compared with what we get in him, everything else is a pile of old junk. Paul is so convinced of all this that for however long he lives, he's determined to keep going like a runner in a race in order to lay his hands on all that Jesus has for him. Paul sets us an example worth following, and we should not be too proud to imitate anyone we see running this race well. We must never forget that we are already citizens of heaven. One day we're going to look just like Jesus, powerful and glorious. So let's live in anticipation of that right now. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, Paul says, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Having set out all he set out, Paul brings it to this conclusion with his expression of pastoral affection for the church in Philippi. Look at the language he uses. My brothers and sisters, this is a phrase that he's used now five times in this letter. It speaks of them as being family together, of how they've experienced together adoption by God together, how they stand on common ground as God's people together, how they're family belonging to each other. Paul speaks about his love and longing for the Philippians, that this isn't just a business transaction but it's genuine, it's of the heart. He loves them and he longs for them. They're a long way apart there in Philippi. He's in prison in Rome, but they want to be together because they're friends. They enjoy being together. They're his joy and his crown. He sees God at work in them. He experiences the joy of Christ as he thinks about his friends in Philippi. And they're his crown. A crown is very symbolic. It's a sign of power, of authority. It's a symbol of rule of government. And he says, look, you're my crown. You're the sun. You're the evidence that what I've taught about Jesus Christ is true. You're the evidence that the gospel is true, that Jesus is real and Jesus saves. You prove it. You demonstrate it. And so, as those who know the love of God and know what it is to be brothers and sisters in God's presence and those who are this kind of crowning joy, stand firm. Don't let anything move you. Don't get budged by anything, by the troubles that come and temptations and difficulties. Don't don't get pushed off the solid ground of Christ. You're beloved. You're loved by me and you're loved by God. Paul says these things about the Philippians and they're true of us as well. That those of us as part of this church who put our faith in Jesus, we're beloved by God and we're brothers and sisters together in Christ Jesus. And it's a sense in which we also kind of crown the works of God, the gospel. The gospel has proved true through us and there's joy in that. And these things are good and they're encouraging and they're uplifting and they're wonderful and they're things to celebrate. But then Paul goes into the reality of a situation in the church which isn't reflecting these things as it should. Verse 2. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. What we have here is two women who have fallen out, Yodia and Syntyche. Don't know anything else about them. This is the only place in the Bible they appear. And all we know about them is that they've had a massive barney. And if you're going to have your name recorded in the Bible for all time, best not for this. 
and uh, yet not many babies have been called Yodia and Syntyche. Uh, why have you called your baby Yodia? Oh, well, she was a woman who had a really big fight with her friends. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not great. Now, doing life together can be hard, and the reality is that disagreements happen. And actually, especially in families, in biological families, there can be huge arguments, disagreements, loggerheads, fights, rifts. And in the body of Christ, brothers and sisters together, there can be disagreements, fallings, fallings out with one another. Disagreements happen. Now, we don't know what Yoyodia and Syntyche had fallen out about. And in a sense, that's not relevant. It's clearly not relevant to Paul. He's not concerned about the issue he's of their falling out. He's concerned about the issue they've fallen out. That's, that is the issue. And certainly in my experience, I've seen conflicts in church, disagreements, warnings out, where there hasn't been reconciliation. And when that happens, it's tragic. And that can happen for different reasons. Sometimes it can happen because of sin. And if there is sin and there isn't repentance, well, you can't have reconciliation and restoration without genuine repentance. And so if somebody sins and is hardened in their sin, well, the situation isn't going to get sorted out because you need to repent be reconciled and be restored. Sometimes it's not because of sin. Sometimes conflict comes over theological issues. There becomes a disagreement between people about how we read the scriptures and apply the scriptures and how we understand them. And, and that can cause rifts. Actually, much more often than either of those things, it's just personality. You just start to rub one another up the wrong way. And when you do that, of course, sin comes in and any theological differences start to get heightened and highlighted. But really, the fundamental issue is just you're just annoying each other and that develops into an argument. An argument becomes a fight and a fight becomes a rift and a rift becomes something very destructive. And uh, I've seen that happen in church life. I've seen it happen among church members. I've seen it happen between church members and church leaders. I've seen it happen between, actually, probably most often in leadership teams where really what fundamentally is a personality clash develops into something which just rips a relationship and potentially a church apart. And that is tragic when it happens. Conflict is inevitable. It's part of living in a fallen world. And especially in the church, we expect conflict because we're engaged in a spiritual battle. We are. Paul has made this very clear right from the beginning of the letter. Uh, he says at the end of chapter 1, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. We Christians are engaged in a spiritual fight. We are. We have an enemy who hates Jesus and hates the church and hates us. We have an enemy who wants to stir up dissension and argument. We have an enemy who doesn't want us to do what the things we should do in order to see the church flourishing. We've got an, an enemy who doesn't want you to give your money away. We've got an enemy who doesn't want you to come out on a Tuesday or a Thursday night or a Sunday morning. We've got an enemy who doesn't want you to be at, at peace with other members of the church. We've got an enemy who doesn't want you to pray and read the scriptures and think about Christ. We've got an enemy who hates us and wants to destroy us. We're engaged in a spiritual fight. We are, and so conflict is inevitable. There's that external pressure. There's also internal pressures that sometimes it's just a case of personality traits and starts and disagreements. We don't always get on, and so we need to be spiritually alert to what is really going on. There's times when really we're under a spiritual kind of conflict, and other times when it's just a case of, basically, you're not the kind of person I like very much, and working that out. Now, Paul himself had gone through 
conflict like this. And it's particularly illuminating here because it happens just before Paul goes, goes to Philippi. And, it, and we're told about it in Acts 15. It's uh, worth turning back there, page 651. Acts 16, we get the account of how Paul and his companions ended up in Philippi and the church got started. But just before that, uh, Paul and his friend Barnabas have an almighty falling out. It's verse 36 of Acts chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas, they're in the church in a place called Antioch, which is kind of home base for them. And it's uh, a strong church and it's where they get sent out from to do mission. And they've been away doing mission and they come back to Antioch and they're Antioch for quite a time. And then it says... After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, it's easy to miss the seriousness of the argument. It, you can kind of skip over it, and it looks just like a, a, a paragraph, which is kind of connecting different parts of the story about how the church was spreading in the Roman Empire at this time. But this was clearly a really serious rift. Barnabas had been Paul's first Christian friend and mentor. When, when Paul, who was a rabid Pharisee trying to destroy the church, was encountered by Jesus Christ and came to faith, the other Christians were, of course, terrified of him because he'd been trying to kill them. And Barnabas was the one who put his arm around Paul and introduced him to the church and said, come on, this guy has been changed by Jesus. Let's welcome him. Let's receive him. And Barnabas was Paul's first mentor, his first friend. And he's also the leader in when the account starts in Acts, it's not Paul and Barnabas, it's Barnabas and Paul. That Barnabas was the, was the leader of the team, and Barnabas is the one who gets hold of, of Paul and says, come on, let's go on mission together. It's Barnabas who's leading. He's Paul's best friend. He's Paul's first mentor. He's the guy who's helped Paul come through to understand all that Christ is and all that Christ has called him to. They're as close as could be. And on one of their mission trips, they're away, and they, they always travel with friends, and they've got this young guy with them called John Mark. And it tells us in Acts 13 that John Mark decides to leave them in this place called Pamphylia. And again, it looks kind of innocuous, but clearly it was serious, that they were engaged in mission work, which was always challenging, always difficult, always dangerous, and, and Mark bailed out. He just, for whatever reason, he just didn't want to be there anymore, and he bailed out and kind of ran away. And it's made more complex because... Mark was cousin to Barnabas. We're told that in Colossians chapter 4. So you've got Barnabas and you've got Paul who are great friends, but you've got Barnabas and Mark, and Mark is Barnabas' cousin, and so there's blood connection here, and that always complicates things. And later on now, Barnabas wants to take John Mark with him again, and Paul says, no, I just I can't trust the guy. I just can't trust him. Think about how he... Think about the, what we were involved in together, and he walked out. He's not reliable. He's not trustworthy. He did us damage last time, and we're going back into something which is equally perilous and risky and bold, and we just can't afford to have someone as flaky as Mark with us. We just can't risk it. And Barnabas says, no, we can. I trust him. I believe he's going to be good this time, and he's my cousin, and I want him. And Barnabas and Paul have a sharp disagreement, and it's a really strong term in, in, in the Greek, and they fall out, and they literally go in opposite directions. 
Barnabas gets on a boat and heads west with Mark to Cyprus, and Paul gets Silas and heads west off into Syria. They literally turn their backs on each other, go in opposite directions because of how serious this dispute over John Mark is. Now, we don't, uh, uh, we don't know how what happened next in terms of the immediate um, next steps in, the, in their relationship, but I'm sure that as Paul was writing to the Philippians, and he's writing about Euodian Syntyche, I'm sure he's got in mind what happened between him and Barnabas. This great falling out between friends. He knew the reality of conflict. And, and the good thing is, although we don't know exactly what happened in the next steps, we do know that Paul and Mark and presumably Barnabas were reconciled to one another later on. And we know that because six or seven years after Paul writes this letter to the church in Philippi from a prison in Rome, he's back in Rome and again in prison. And this time, actually, it's much more serious and the conditions he's kept in are far worse. And this time, it's going to end up with him being executed, not released. And he writes a letter to his friend Timothy. And in 2 Timothy 4, he, he says to Timothy, I need some help. And he says, would you bring Mark to me because Mark is helpful to me for my ministry. There's been reconciliation. Uh, now Mark has proved himself again and he's been embraced by Paul again. And Paul wants Mark, especially Mark with him because he's so helpful to him. We don't know how that had happened. How Paul and Barnabas and Mark had got it sorted out, but they had, praise God. And we can see from what Paul says to Iodia and Syntyche some of the principles about how you reconcile when there's difficulty of relationship. One thing that Paul does is he appeals directly to these two women. He reminds them of who they are. Now, we, we know nothing about these two women other than the fact that they'd fallen out with one another. Uh, and Paul urges them to think the same thing. It urges them to agree in the Lord. It urges them to remember who they are. And this is something which he has already urged upon the whole church. In uh, chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Agree together. He's urged that upon the whole church, and now he's urging that, appealing for that to Yoyodia and Syntyche specifically. We don't know what the cause of the argument was, and really that's not the issue here. Paul isn't taking sides. He's not, um, he, he's not trying to say, well, you're more right and she's more wrong and trying to pick these things apart. No, the issue is they've fallen, fallen out with one another, and that's a serious issue, and it must have been a really serious issue for Paul to mention it here. I mean, this is public. It's in a public letter, so it's not kind of minding people's privacy which at times we can be so concerned about. Now, this is public. Everybody in the church is going to know that Paul's concerned about what's going on. It's not being swept under the carpet and kept quiet. No, this is, this is public stuff. And it must have been really serious. It must have been threatening the whole unity of the church for Paul to publicly identify these two women in this way. And so the issue, whatever it is they've fallen out over, isn't nearly so important as the fact that they need to find agreement and it's fascinating that Paul doesn't mention the issue. Why did they fall out? We don't know. We don't know. And I, I think probably there wasn't any great sin issue or any particular theological issue. I think if that had been the case, Paul would have said, because he normally does. I think it's just these two women who'd been great friends had started to rub each other up the wrong way. And all kinds of stuff had then come in, and they'd started to form factions, and she had her gang, and she had her gang, and they said this about them, and they said that about her. And... 
what had been a beautiful friendship had become something which was toxic, cancerous in the church. And Paul's not concerned about unpicking all the reasons, all the things she said and the things that she did. And he's not interested in that. He's not doing that. He's not raking over the coals. He's not digging up the dead bodies. All he's saying is, look, you just need to, you just need to agree. You need to agree. And the way to resolution is Christ. And clearly, when Paul wrote chapter 2 of Philippians, and he was, wasn't writing in, in chapters the way we've got them divided in our Bibles, clearly he was thinking about Euodia and Syntyche in the instructions that he gives to the whole congregation. And the model he gives is that of Christ. Be like Christ. Have one mind and be like Christ. What was Christ like? Christ was humble. Christ came as a servant. Christ didn't take advantage of his position and his status. Christ sacrificed himself even to death. How, Euodia and Syntyche, are you going to resolve this problem? You're not going to resolve it by raking over the coals of your argument. You're not going to, be, you're not going to resolve it by documenting everything that went wrong and working through it bullet point by bullet point. You're not going to do that. You're not going to reconcile it by having a long and detailed debate together to unpack everything that has gone wrong and everything might happen. You're, the way you're going to reconcile is by being like Jesus, being humble, serving, sacrificing, thinking of the other. How do you get out of conflict? By acting in a more Christ-like way. I think of the situations I know of where there hasn't been reconciliation, where there isn't any particular massive sin or theological disagreement. And the reason there hasn't been reconciliation is always because there's been a lack of Christ-likeness just a refusal to follow the way of Christ and a determination to do the things the way that humans normally do with that long list of he said and she said and didn't and did. And we can't sort this out until I've gone through my list and that's all sorted out. And that's not the way to reconciliation. The way to reconciliation is Christ-like humility and servanthood and sacrifice and so Paul appeals directly to them to be like Jesus. He also makes an appeal to others to help them. He says, true companion, help these women. We don't know who the true companion is. Prodiodia and Syntyche get named forevermore. We don't know who the true companion is. But clearly he was somebody. And it is a he. We know that from the, from the grammar of the, of the Greek text. It was a he. Clearly this was a man in the church who had the authority and the influence and the responsibility and the tact to help these two women sort out their issues. And often if we're in conflict with someone else, the first step out of it is to get the help of somebody else. Somebody else who will be like Jesus in the situation. Someone who can come in and help bring reconciliation. And that's what this true companion is being urged to do. It's, he's clearly got the potential to help in this situation. Now, the thing about that is it's incredibly humbling to get help from somebody else. If you're in conflict, it's much easier and much more satisfying to build a faction, to get the gang on your side who see it your way over against the other person. It's much more difficult and it's much more humbling to recognize that you might need some help. And this person can help you, and they might say some things which actually you don't like. But that's going to help you to sort out your issues with this other person. It's a humbling thing to do. It's a humbling thing actually to have somebody tell you what you already know. And Euodia and Syntyche, they know. 
They know how to get out of this problem. They know what they need to do. They know they need to be more Christ-like. And one of the ways they're going to be enabled to do that is by having somebody come alongside them and say, ladies, you need to be more like Jesus. And that's an incredibly humbling thing to do. That's a Christ-like thing to to do, to be prepared to receive that kind of counsel and that kind of help. And Paul appeals to this true companion. But don't shirk your responsibility here, my friends. Please help these two women to be reconciled to one another. He appeals to them. He appeals to others for help. And then he appeals to eternity. There is a little bit more we know about Euodia and Syntyche than simply they'd have an argument. Paul says that they have labored side by side. Euodia and Syntyche have been hard workers. They've worked hard with Paul and they've worked hard for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have been the kind of women who turn up. They are there for everything. They're leading the charge. They're enthusiastic. They're working hard. They're serving other people. They're diligent. They've been key members of the church. And we don't know this is speculation, but it's quite possible that these two women were actually amongst that first group who responded when Paul came to town and preached the gospel. In, in Acts 16, we read about how when Paul turned up in Philippi, he went down to the river, and there were some women who were gathered to pray at the river, and they responded in faith to Jesus when Paul told them about Christ Jesus. And we, and we, and we know about one of those women. We talked about Lydia who responded in the church, then starts to meet in her house. She was a wealthy woman. But there are other women with Lydia who responded to the gospel. And maybe Euodia and Syntyche were there at that time. Whether or not they were, they have worked hard in this church. And they've worked hard with Paul. And they've worked hard with Clement, whoever he was. And they've worked hard with other people. And we don't know much about Iodia and Syntyche. And we don't know who the true companion is. And we don't know who Clement was. But Paul says their names are in the book of life. Their names are in the book of life. And God keeps careful record of who is his. He has a book. And the book of life is symbolic of this. Um, It's a term that appears a number of times in Scripture. Talking about how God knows who is his. In Exodus 32, there's an encounter, a kind of negotiation that goes on between Moses and God. When the people of Israel so often have rebelled against God and God's saying, oh, I kind of forget that lot. And Moses says to God, forgive their sin or please blot me out of your book. Moses knows his name is written in God's book of life, but he wants all the people of Israel to be in God's book of life as well. Daniel 12, verse 1, God speaks to the prophet Daniel and says, your people should be delivered. Everyone whose name should be found written in the book. Revelation 3, it says, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Revelation 20 brings us into real sharp focus. It says, if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. God knows who who is his. Those who are his, their names are written in the book. They will be with him forever. There'll be judgment for those who are not. Followers of Christ have their names written in the book of life. And knowing this is meant to have an influence on how we relate to one another here and now. An eternal perspective changes things. If you're in a fight with somebody, all you can think about is the present, this fight now, and the past, all the things they've done wrong, which brought us to this point now. A Christian thinks with an eternal perspective. 
A Christian thinks about the fact that my name is written in the book of life and that the day is going to come when I'm going to be transformed to the likeness of Christ, his power and his glory. I'm going to be with him and see him and I'm going to be like him. And for all time, I shall enjoy perfect happiness in a world made new with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'm going to be surrounded by God's people, including him and including her. And that has to change how we think about one another now. If eternally we're going to be together, enjoying life together with a level of happiness we haven't even touched in this world. Seeing that has got to change how we see things now. It's got to, it puts an end to squabbling and fighting now. It has to. This is what we're destined for. Life, happiness with Christ forever. And so Paul appeals to eternity. Remember your names are written in the book of life. Start acting like it now. What are the next steps for us then today? Well, <coughs> today is the International Day of Happiness. Much more importantly, of course, it is Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, everything looked great, everything looked rosy. The crowds were on the streets, triumphing Jesus into Jerusalem, throwing their coats and palm branches on the floor before him, proclaiming his greatness. The king is coming, the king is coming. Everything looked good, but Jesus knew the reality that a few days later he'd be tried and scourged and hung on a cross. He knew it was coming. And we also, we need to be fortified to face the realities of life. We're called to a life of joy, but we're called to joyful reality. The life throws up its difficulties, its conflicts, its complications. And so we need to make the decision to agree, as Paul urges the Philippians here, to be of one mind. As we come to this week, as we come to Good Friday on Friday and Easter Sunday next week, we, of course, come to the end of the season of Lent. And we don't make much of Lent here. It's not part of, of our tradition and there are good theological reasons for that but in the orthodox church they do make a great deal of lent and one of the first things that the orthodox church does in the season of lent is to have a service where the members of the church express forgiveness to one another and it's a rather beautiful and powerful thing somebody who's a member of the orthodox church describes it like this we offer forgiveness to everyone present not collectively but individually, from person to person to person. This is one of the most powerful moments of the church year. One by one, each parishioner bows or prostrates, first before the priest, and then each other asking, forgive me, a sinner. Each responds with a bow or prostration, asking also for forgiveness and assuring, God forgives. Each then exchanges the kiss of peace. Now, I think that must be a remarkably powerful thing to do. It says that the first thing they do is bow before the priest and ask for his forgiveness. We don't have priests in this church. We've got me, so it'd be like Dan choosing to lie on the floor before me and ask for my forgiveness. That would feel pretty good. But then the deal is that I have to bow on the floor before him and ask for his forgiveness too. It's everybody in the church does it to everybody else in the church, regardless of status or age or position. I think there's something remarkably powerful about that. And it might be that we need to make our acts of forgiveness more tangible. Maybe not lying on the floor before each other, but maybe actually enacting it in some way. It might be that as we take the bread and the wine in a moment, we need to more tangibly express forgiveness to each other. And there's 
ways we can do that which are helpful and ways which we can do which are very unhelpful. Certainly I've been on the receiving end of unhelpful forgiveness at times. When somebody's come to me and said, I was really offended by what you did, but I forgive you. I don't feel forgiven, I feel puked on. That's not forgiveness. That's making me know of something they're offended by. Real forgiveness is when Christ-like we just offer it to one another without condition. It actually works much more powerfully the other way. That if I'm aware I've done something which is wrong to another person, and I say, I know I've done this wrong, and I ask for your forgiveness, that's liberating. And it might be that we do know that we have wronged one another in some way, and we need to ask for the forgiveness of the other. But all of us who know Christ are to express and receive forgiveness from each other as we have received it from him. We're not going to be best friends with everybody. That's just not realistic. But we are to be reconciled to one another. And this does start with the forgiveness that Jesus has given us. It starts with Easter, that Jesus forgives us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to enter that place of forgiveness. You need to know that your name is written in the book of life. For those of us who do have that confidence that we've received the forgiveness of Christ, our names are written in his book, well, we need to live as those whose names are written in the book of life. We need to live it. We need to be ready for the realities of life and to deal with it. This is Palm Sunday. It's a day on which we welcome Jesus and we welcome one another. Amen? Let's pray. Would you stand with me and lead us in prayer? Jesus, thank you for your forgiveness given to us. Thank you that on that day you hung on a cross and carried the weight of the world's sin and shame. You dealt with it, killed it, destroyed it, enabling us to come into the presence of God. Thank you that you made it possible for our names to be written in the book of life. Thank you that this isn't dependent on where we were born or who we were born to, what we know. Thank you that it's not inherited in that sense. It's a free gift given to us now. Well, thank you that so many of us in this room can lay claim to this and say, yes, I know my name is written in the Lamb's book of life and will never be blotted out. Lord, I pray for those here this morning who don't yet know that, that you might bring them this morning to that place of receiving your forgiveness and knowing the confidence of life now and forever. Lord, I believe that you are the happiest being in the universe. You are the very essence of happiness. And so, Lord, I want to know more of you and I pray for my brothers and sisters and all of us here today that we would find our happiness in you. Lord, thank you there are techniques and keys we can adopt uh, which help us in these things, but Lord, we know that you are the source, you're the origin, and so we come to you this day and express our trust in you again. And I pray that you would help us to receive your forgiveness afresh and to minister it to one another. I pray that there wouldn't be animosity between us. I pray in the body of Christ here that we'd be those who share the same mind, would have settled the big issues of faith and life, and that we would be determined to stand united in Christ. I pray that as we take bread and wine now, this great sign of our 
oneness of our unity, that we would be reminded of this afresh. I pray we'd come to you, King Jesus, we'd feed on you. I pray, Lord, if there's things we need to sort out, out with others here, we'd, you'd give us the grace, the humility to do that. And uh, Lord, that yes, we might be strengthened in you again, knowing we're a forgiven people, an eternal people, a blessed people, a happy people because of what you have done. Amen.